It's a little crazy out there right now, so Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over all the exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts, like this one. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the first 15 issues of the original run of Fangoria magazine, and counting. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic is now available to watch on Shudder. And by the way, so is Nightmare Cinema. Before I get into your questions, I just wanted to mention a couple of projects I have out that I'd love for you to know about. First of all, my very first audiobook, A Life in the Cinema, is now available on Audible. These are eight short stories that I wrote, and they are read by Matt Frewer, Stephen Weber, the late Miguel Ferrer, and myself, with introduction by Stephen King and afterward by Toby Hooper, read by Joe Lansdale. Like I said, it's now available on Audible. Secondly, back in my youth, I was lead singer and songwriter in a progressive rock band with a sense of humor called Horse Feathers. Though we never released an album back in the day, we recorded a lot. We've gone back to several of our best recordings, improved the technology, added some new vocals and instrumentation, and the result is our first album, Symphony for a Million Mice. It will be available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube Music, and all your favorite streaming apps, as well as on CD in a couple of select stores and on our website, horsefeathersmusic.com, on March 20th. And now, your questions, please. I'm Mick Garrison. Welcome once again to Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Joe, what have we got in store today? Ingrid asks, how do you feel about the Ken, a theater in San Diego, closing? What do you think about the future of single screen theaters? And is it worth trying to keep them running? Well, of course, it's worth trying to keep them going, you know, whether it's financially possible or feasible today in, in this market where a movie theater lives or dies on, on its gross receipts when you can only show one movie and you don't know if it's going to perform well or not, that's a big risk. Um, the Ken Theater, I haven't been to it since I lived in, in the San Diego area in the late 70s, uh, but it was always one of my favorite repertory theaters mm. where it was not just art house movies, but it was also older films or or cult films and, and the sort of things that you only see at midnight, that kind of thing. Right. And it was, it was great. It was a really terrific uh, theater, and... I'm surprised it last this it lasted this long. I mean, yeah, there were yeah. other theaters in in San Diego, like the Academy Theater, and there was one in La Jolla that was uh, a very uh, wonderful place to see off kilter films. If but only have, uh, if only one had a, a wealthy filmmaking patron like Quentin to buy up the New Beverly and yeah, <laughs> I mean that is our our single hope is somebody who. Yeah. Who can afford to run a single screen theater for the love of it? Yep. And um, you know it, it's great to have them. 
And you know, tons it's, of fun. It's tons of fun to go see those repertories. It, it's really yeah. great. You know, the multiplexes have become something different lately now mm-hmm. that you've got chairs that recline and, right. you know, nicer, all great sound and image. So I'm not as much um, critical of the multiplexes as I used to be because often they're the best facilities in town for showing films. Zombie Killer asks, <laughs> what are your fondest memories of the drive-in? Sticking on movie theaters for a minute. Out, outdoor. Yeah. yeah. Well, some of my fondest memories at the drive-in I can't talk about here. <laughs> uh, they were my formative years, and that was great. That but, makes sense. But probably the one that has the biggest impact on me was I saw Psycho in the drive-in when I was, well, seven years old, eight years wow. old, wow. whatever, when yeah. it came out. Yeah. And I'm one of four kids, well, one of seven. My mother remarried and had another family. Um, and uh, there were four of us who went to see it in our station wagon at the Reseda Drive-In here in the San Fernando Valley. Wow. Um, and it's the same theater, drive-in theater, where they shot Peter Bogdanovich's Targets with Boris Karloff. Huh. And it was right off the 405 freeway. And it was amazing. I'd never seen a horror movie that was really grown up. Right. And horror movies in 1960 were thought of as for kids. Right. And uh, Psycho is not for kids. And I was the second oldest, so I had a younger brother and younger sister who were quite impressionable <laughs> ages. So, um, you know, uh, we would always tease my little sister, Mrs. Bates, Mrs. Bates, and then turn around with our eyes rolled back uh, to be corpses and made her scream. But, uh, you know, that had a huge impact on me. You know, I'd seen other family films at the drive-in, and it was a family experience, and we all shared popcorn, and that we made at home because we couldn't afford to buy it at the exorbitant (laughs) rates at the snack bar. Sure. Um, But, No no one still can afford the snack bar. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But but Psycho was was definitely uh, an important moment in my cinematic upbringing. Did uh, did your mom have any idea what, what she had in store when she was bringing you guys to see that? No, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Because at the time, Alfred Hitchcock Presents was on. Sure. And he was this avuncular character who was doing tongue-in-cheek right. kind of funny stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, there were some pretty creepy episodes of, of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but they were never as intense as Psycho. Psycho, Psycho completely changed. People don't realize... What a what the landscape was like before Psycho. It was radioactive monsters or Carpathian right. castles and right, you right. know the things that were gothic and otherworldly that didn't really walk hand in hand with us down the street. Right. And Norman Bates was real world, real world, gobble gobble one of us. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And then uh, you know he just made a sequel. Couple years later, <laughs> oh, thirty years later. This is the thirtieth anniversary of Psycho Four wow. and the sixtieth anniversary of Psycho wow. this year, twenty twenty. Unbelievable. Yeah. <clears throat> At Fango Fanblog asks, was there ever any talk to a sequel to Sleepwalkers? There was a little bit of talk. I mean, the movie was successful. It was the number one movie the week that it came out and and all. But I never heard the studio talk about it. But Tabitha King, Stephen King's wife, actually 
wrote a uh, treatment for a sequel to Sleepwalkers that involved a women's basketball team somehow. I'm not sure how. I never read it. But King was very excited that Tabby came up with this, but it was a sequel that nobody at the studio gave a shit about. You Ah. know, they, they liked the money that Sleepwalkers made, but it was not a prestige release by any means. Sure. And uh, so they never even thought about Sleepwalkers after. So uh, I'm surprised there hasn't been a a quest to reboot it. Yeah. In, in these you know, days of rebooting everything, no well, matter what the quality or success level. We had we had a very flirtatious conversation with a production company about uh, a year ago, maybe. Yeah. It was that was nothing more than flirting. Flirting. Uh, yeah. yeah. With disaster. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, at Benjamin570 asks, did you ever hear any reaction by Stanley Kubrick to your version of The Shining? I would be willing to bet that Stanley Kubrick never saw our version of The Shining. I don't <laughs> think he cared. Yeah. Except he was paid $1.5 million for us to have the right to make the miniseries. Unbelievable. Even though it, it was not a remake of the movie that he'd made, but instead an original miniseries based on the book written by its author, Stephen King, Mm -hmm. wrote the teleplay. So uh, the simple answer is, so far as I know, he never saw it. I don't think he's going to say anything at this point. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Craig writes... Also, there there is another caveat to that. Um, No one was allowed to talk about the $1.5 And part of the contract, it was written into the contract that Stephen King could not badmouth Kubrick's film. Huh. Interesting. So he he had to stop, basically, because he had previously. It was quite well known that King did not love the Kubrick film. But once we were on track to make that movie, part of his contract was that he could not badmouth the Kubrick film. How long did he hold that embargo? (laughs) Probably until he died. Ah, and then and then yeah. it could yeah that makes sense okay yeah because yeah, I feel like I've always known that fact. Well, I don't know uh, if King has talked about it since then. Well, he did on our show yes. famously say <laughs> "fuck Kubrick." <laughs> yes, but uh, but yeah. yeah. Uh, Craig writes: If you could direct a remake of any property of your own with a sufficient budget and schedule for any venue, feature, series, miniseries. What would you like to create a new version of? My philosophy is always to move forward and not look back. You know, once something is finished, you've put your heart and soul into it, and it's done. Um, It is what it is, uh, and I'd rather do something. I'm not a big fan of reboots and remakes in the first place, even though we just talked about The Shining. It was certainly not a remake of the Kubrick film, but it was an opportunity to tell the story of the book. Um, And so, you know, sure, everything I've done, I wish there were things I'd done better in them. And if I didn't have that feeling, I would be a hack and I would not be interested in growth as a storyteller. Right. Um, So, no, I think you know, I'm I'm quite sanguine to to let the things that have been finished and completed and released and unleashed unto the world stand on their own two feet, live the lives they have, whether they're long or short, and just try and find something new next time out. I think that's a great philosophy. At whether it you, is or not, it's well, mine. It's yours. <laughs> yeah. 
at Witching Season Films writes, Films that blend serious family drama with traditional horror elements are commonplace these days. Riding the Bullet feels like a movie that was very much ahead of its time. The final monologue at the end is one of my favorite pieces of writing, well, ever. It's absolutely beautiful. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the theme and phrase, fun is fun and done is done. Where did it originate? Did it come from the novella? And what does that phrase mean to you? Well, I really appreciate those words. I mean, this is, as I've spoken about before, the most personal movie I've made. It was inspired by having lost my brother and my mother, uh, or my father at that time. It was years later that I lost my mother and another brother and a sister. Um, but uh, done is done. Fun is fun and done is done is from the novella. Uh, it was a King line. And basically it is, look, you live your life, you have your fun, but it's time to move on. It's time to grow up. It's time to make a decision that is going to affect what your life is going to be from now on. And in this point, the fun is fun is, okay, you've been having a good time, but now you've got to make a choice between, for those of you who know the story or have seen the movie, it's about a kid who gets a call that his mother is in the hospital, possibly dying, and hitchhikes to see her, is picked up by someone who may be a minion of the devil himself or be the devil himself, who offers him the Sophie's choice of, by the time we get to the next town, either you have to make a decision. Either I take you or I take your mother. And it's up to you. And if you don't make that choice, I will take you both. So this boy, who's 21 years old, becomes responsible for his own life and his mother's life. And he has to reach the maturity of making that decision. And it's a tough one because in this case, his mother may be close to dying. She's lived longer than he has, and maybe it should be her. Or in his case, he's got... He's a young man just starting out, healthy and all, but in the version of the movie, uh, I make him someone who has been obsessed with imagery of death as an artist. He's an art student, and he thinks death is great. He attempts and botches a suicide and thinks death is glamorous. Okay, if it's so glamorous, then it should be you to give up your life. So it's a quandary that's an impossible question to answer. So... For fun is fun and done is done, it's a life-changing question. It's about whose life is ended, and it's your responsibility to make that choice. And the ending, I'm really pleased that, that he brought up the ending uh, dialogue, that voiceover narration, because it's not from the book. It's something that, uh, I mean, there are a few ideas in it from the book, but something that... Uh, that was just really important to me. And I was feeling quite vulnerable and, and emotional about the people in my life who I'd lost. And I tied that into a theme of the Beatles, which was not in the original story either, but um, it, it's there a metaphor for the choices having been made. There's a long answer. <laughs> no, it's a great answer. It's a great answer. And I know, I know what a Thanks. personal movie that, that is to you. So yeah. I'm sure, uh, uh, it's nice to hear someone else that resonate as well. Yeah, especially the film was not a success, uh, either critically or financially. And uh, 
but I started to hear from people who'd lost a parent or a loved one or something who found solace in that film and identified with it. And, and so it's, it has definitely been gratifying. One last question. Tonya writes, you were so kind and easygoing. <laughs> Is there a story you can tell without saying who about an artist that totally tried your patience and goodwill or who, who you would never work with again? There have been a couple of very challenging actors I've worked with. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you have a choice and you work with somebody that it was not a really wonderful and enriching experience, yeah. I mean, there have been a couple of movies I've worked on, both with actors you would know, um, who made it into about themselves and they weren't a part of the machine that is a movie including the other casts around them and there was a sort of vanity and selfishness that i don't care about me my job is to wrangle everything mm -hmm. and to encourage everybody to do their best work but i do care about the other actors and the crew in in one case uh it was somebody changing their mind about how to play a scene and the crew had to sit around while the pontificating went on for quite some time. Wow. And in another case, we were in a very cold, very inclement outdoor location at three in the morning, and an actor started having questions about their motivation. And it was a group scene. We had seven actors in the scene, all of us waiting for this, again, pontification and conversation <laughs> that goes on and on while the sun is threatening to come up at any time in a very uncomfortable location. And, uh, so, so, well, so yeah. <clears throat> you're talking to an actor and they're having that pontification and you know the clock is against you. How do you navigate that? Well, you try and understand what they're talking about as quickly as possible and giving your feedback and trying to engage everybody and let the other actors know that they're a part of it too and try as nicely and as persuasively to convince the actor that you will take all of this into consideration but there are, is a whole crew and all these other actors who are a part of this scene too that we need to, to make work. So usually it's to take the actor away from everybody else, have those conversations with him like this, and try and make that happen. Sometimes an actor will use it to grandstand and to intentionally do it in front of a cast and crew mm -hmm. and delay things and let them know that he's the most important, he or she is the most important person in that scene. Yeah, uh, I've also had somebody come on set uh, with a sheaf of pages and say, here's my rewrite when we're ready to shoot the scene. <laughs> and it was rewriting a very successful screenwriter. Oh. And so I have to take that into consideration. And, and this was a very long shoot that this actor was a part of and mm -hmm. uh, going, okay, how is this going to be over the months that we're shooting this? And I'm still with this actor for, this is just the beginning. How's right. it going to be? Right. How do we lay the groundwork for our relationship on what's to come? So what did you do? In this case, went through the pages 
and where it didn't affect the other actors and their conversations and the dialogue, if it was just how something was said, that it was more comfortable in that actor's mouth, that was fine with me, and I would give it my approval. Sure. But if it changed the meaning of the scene or the meaning to the other actors involved and their performance and their characters and their interaction with the story, then I would say, no, this isn't going to work. But I, I want the actor to know that I'm listening for their input and open to it as long as we all agree that that's what's best for the movie and not just the actor. Well, and that's a great way to disarm that situation. Try. Try. <laughs> Did you ever have a time when it didn't work? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's one actor that um, wanted things that actor's way. Yeah. And uh, it was difficult to move he or she off of that, uh, him or her off of that to be grammatical. Um, <laughs> and uh, but usually we work things out. And by the time we get the scene in the can, usually everybody's happy with it. Well, on that note, Mick. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, that wraps up another Postmortem AMA, the fun size episode. Thank you, Joe. And you you can send us your questions for a future AMA at Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter, at Mick Garris PM on Instagram and Twitter, and at our Facebook page, uh, Postmortem with Mick Garris. So look forward to your next questions. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mick. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.